This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 25th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. At the Cato Institute's Benefactor Summit held this weekend, I sat down with Justin Amash, for a while the only libertarian member of the U.S. House, after departing the GOP. We talked about political realignment, how to make libertarian ideas more attractive to a broader swath of Americans, the rise of illiberalism, and the friends of liberty remaining in either major party. We also talked about how libertarians ought to message on behalf of a free society. Is it fair to say that we are still in the midst of a political realignment, or can, can we, uh, is it over? <laughs> I think it's still happening. Um, I, what I think has happened is you've seen a shift toward illiberalism in both parties. And uh, this has had maybe a more dramatic effect on the Republican Party immediately, um, as we saw with, with Donald Trump, where populism and nationalism and the things that come along with that, like protectionism, um, and some nativism and other things that go along with that have really permeated. And now you have a party that is not really um, well-founded in classical liberal traditions. On the Democratic side, it's been maybe a more gradual creep in that direction, but it's certainly been moving that way for a long time. Um, You used to have Democrats who cared about things like due process civil liberties, and you still have some Democrats like that, but there are a lot fewer. Uh, It's increasingly the case that for each side, you see like a winner-take-all attitude, an end-justifies-the-means sort of attitude. We must crush our enemies and grind them into the ground, and and then then we will have succeeded, and then we'll have a wonderful place where where we all hate each other. So, uh, so, yeah, I think that's been the realignment, and that leaves a lot of Americans out there who are looking at these two parties and looking at the two leading candidates for president, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and wondering how did we get here, uh, what are we supposed to do, um, and I do think that leaves an opening for people if they, if they want to move into something different. What's the opportunity, then, for uh, libertarians in that environment? I think there's a big opportunity, but libertarians have to um, message libertarianism in a way that is appealing to a lot of people. I think that uh, too often the impression people have of libertarianism is that it's, it's selfish. It's about how can I get my thing and forget about everyone else. Um, that's certainly the stereotype. It doesn't take you long to figure that out if you just look at replies on Twitter or anywhere out there. It doesn't matter what kind of libertarian you say you are. That's often the response. Um, I get that uh, reflexively as a response to a lot of my stuff by people who don't know me that well, don't know my history of voting, and they'll reflexively come in and, and assume that what I'm saying is, is something that's based on selfishness and not some kind of um, deeper principle about the country. I think that um, what we really need to talk about more as libertarians is how our philosophy is really about human cooperation and human progress. It's about bringing people together. That's at the heart of libertarianism, and that's something that's appealing to all Americans. You know, millions of Americans want to hear that 
that there is a, uh, a movement, a philosophy that is about that, that's about bringing people together rather than pushing people apart. So with, with all that said, why are you an atomistic individual who hates society? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, so, yeah, I mean, this is the, this is the criticism people have of, of libertarians. And if you, um, if you spend time reading Mises or Hayek or any of the great libertarian thinkers, this is not what libertarianism is about. It's not about... Uh, the lone man, you know, making it by himself and, and isolating himself from the world. It's about how to, how to build a bigger community where we share more ideas, where we work together, um, and we make progress for all of society. So to the extent that there is an opportunity for libertarians amid this political realignment, uh, you say that messaging is a, is a big problem. I think so. I mean, your message is what you lead with, right? You have, people are going to find out what you're about by what you're saying. If you're always out there saying things that sound like selfishness or sound like isolationism, um, that you don't want other people in your life, you want to just basically build a wall around yourself and say, everyone else, get out, I want to just do my thing, then yeah, people are going to think that's what you're about. Um, I think what we need to do is tie the concept of decentralization, which I'm very much about, to this idea of human cooperation, that they actually go hand in hand. It is decentralization which allows human cooperation and flourishing. It's, it's what allows us to work together on a much larger scale. Um, and, and so if we position ourselves as being against uh, you know, central planning, against someone at the top making decisions for everyone, and, uh, and present that as an example of protecting diversity. The fact is, we libertarians are about diversity. We want diversity to flourish. How do you let diversity flourish? Well, you do that by not having someone at the top dictating every, everything to everyone. You crush diversity, you smother diversity when someone is deciding everything for everyone. And so I think we should actually play into the things that people have long loved about America, that we're a country of, of millions of people who come from different backgrounds, we should play into that and present it as, uh, present it as our vision, um, which it is. And uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of libertarians, I think, who are presenting a very contrary vision, and that, that's harmful to everyone. So, and I will tell this story because it's, uh, I don't know, I think it's instructive a little bit. In 1996, I was a delegate to the Libertarian National Convention from Kentucky. And uh, there are, if you dig through C-SPAN footage, you can probably see me in a seersucker suit uh, walking around a hotel in Washington, D.C. for this convention. And of course, Harry Brown was the nominee. And he, was, he did his best to be a libertarian politician. But he did so in such a way that he was attempting to uh, help people understand what libertarians believe. He broadly talked about, uh, his, his book was called Why Government Doesn't Work, a very, it was a very attractive uh, title. And you know, when we were talking uh, earlier this evening, um, there's a pretty stark difference between the messaging that we hear from people who are political libertarians 
and people uh, like here at the Cato Institute who uh, are low, little, lowercase l libertarians who are trying to make an attractive and appealing case for civil society. You still call yourself a libertarian with a capital L. May I ask why? <laughs> I, I think that if you are a libertarian and you're going to call yourself a libertarian and there are people who might say, well, just maybe you want to reclaim the word liberal and bring it back to its you know, true meaning. And I think there's, there's a lot of beauty in that too, especially because people on the left have increasingly abandoned the word liberal and good riddance. We don't want them to have the word liberal. I think that um, they're adopting other words like progressive and, and, um, and maybe other words. So I think there's something to that, but there are, there's probably no better word today that I think neatly defines without a lot of confusion where I stand than the word libertarian. I think it's, it's still a clearer word than a lot of the other words. If I say I'm a liberal, I'm going to be explaining it for, for half an hour what it means. And, you know, I'd love to revive it, but I'm not sure it's that easy. Well, as long as I'm going to call myself a libertarian, I think it's important that the political party that calls itself libertarian is reflective of the views that I think are libertarian. So the only way for me to ensure that is to participate in the process, to say, I'm going to be a part of this. I'm going to work toward that. With any political party, whether it's the libertarians or the Republicans or the Democrats, you're going to have a wide variety of viewpoints, and that's perfectly normal. And you have to work within that range, and you try to build coalitions and try to build common ground. Um, it is important that you have some basic goals that are similar, but, uh, but I think you're going to have to work with people that you don't always agree with. And, and that's why I, I stick with the party, um, and I want to work within the party and help build it up. Uh, look at the Republicans and Democrats, how, like, in the Republican Party, you have Lindsey Graham and you have Rand Paul in the same party. Or in the Democratic Party, um, you know, Bernie Sanders calls himself an independent, but he's, he caucuses with the Democrats. He's basically a Democrat. You've got Bernie Sanders. Um, you have, um, you know, uh, Joe Manchin. So you have, like, a... You know, quite a range there, and that's normal. Who are the friends? Who do, do you identify as the friends of liberty remaining in the two major political parties? So there, there's no one who I think embodies libertarianism in precisely the way that I view it. But when I served in Congress, um, Thomas Massey undoubtedly had a fantastic voting record. I mean, I kept a scorecard of votes. Anything that I thought was an important libertarian vote, I kept track of how all my colleagues voted. It was a secret scorecard. Um, I never really publicized it uh, because, I don't know, I think the leadership would have been upset about it if they knew I had a scorecard. They probably would have put the ethics committee on me or something, um, trying to influence my colleagues. So I had this scorecard. I kept track of my colleagues to see how they're voting. And Thomas Massey's voting record was substantially uh, better than the next highest person. So uh, I mean, I think on my scorecard, he was in the high 90%. I mean, I was 100%, obviously. It's my, it's my, it's my scorecard, right? So like, I, 
I get to be 100% on my scorecard. Uh, Massey was in the high 90s. Um, so he was, whatever you might think of differences in rhetoric and approach, his voting record was good. Rand Paul was a very reliable ally in the Senate. Now, I can't um, promise you anything about their voting records. I don't know one way or another at this point because I'm not there. It's very hard to actually, I, I mean, now I know what all of you were going through. It's very hard to actually know from the sidelines what is going on there. It's hard to follow. You will hear occasionally about their votes, and I might look at a vote and say, oh, like, they were great on this vote. But they're voting a lot. It's not just a few times. For every time you hear about a vote in the news, they've probably voted 20 times. So uh, maybe more than that. So you're not really aware of everything they're doing. And if you're not there, it is hard to follow. So I couldn't tell you exactly how it's going now. But So Rand Paul and Thomas Massey happen to represent yeah, me you're in lucky. Congress. And uh, <laughs> as I, I like to tell people that I do have really good representation in Congress because these two guys generally are dependable votes against war, spending, debt, empire. And then if Mitch McConnell wants to put a naval base in landlocked Kentucky, well, it happens anyway. Um, so, uh, but you would say that those two guys in particular have a, a very different approach than you do really at the core of politics. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I got into politics in an effort to persuade people toward libertarianism. I mean, I, I really believe deeply in it, and I believe it can uh, fundamentally uh, improve human life. If, if, if people follow this set of beliefs and set of principles, I think it can be great for our, not just for our country, for the world, and for human flourishing, human prosperity. So I got into this because I believed I could use uh, representation as an opportunity to persuade people. And it worked wonderfully in my district. I mean, my, my, uh, my district was definitely more satisfied with me with each passing year. So I came in to Congress probably at my lowest level of support and left at probably my highest level of support after 10 years of representing them in Congress. It was, it was to the point where frequently Democrats, long before any of the Trump stuff came, came around, Democrats were stopping me all the time and saying, I support you, I really like what you're doing. Um, you could see it in the vote totals when, on election day, I was getting significant crossover votes from Democrats, and I was still keeping all the Republicans. So yes, it works. I think people, if they are presented libertarianism in the, in the way that I'm talking about, um, as a, a system of human cooperation and human progress, I think that people will, will, uh, will move to it. I do think that a lot of people who get into politics are, um, I think they go in with the right intentions, they want to make things better, but it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking you just need to survive uh, a little longer, you need to do the next thing to get to the next step, um, and 
it's often the case that people will get there and they might be libertarian, but instead of saying, I want to persuade more people toward libertarianism, they'll say, how can I fit in with this broader group? How can I show them that um, my principles are actually compatible with, with uh, their views? And so it's more of an effort. Some, some people have more of a view of it, I want to fit in rather than I want to change things. And I'm more of a, I want to change things person. There was some polling done, and I was pinging Scott Lincecum about this earlier because I was having trouble remembering it. Polling that indicated that support for free trade in the Trump era among Democrats shot up. <laughs> and the Republican attitudes toward people like oh, Vladimir Putin during the Trump years shot up. And so I wonder how much of what is the day-to-day -day politics, in your view, is just unmoored to any deeper principle? Because it doesn't strike me that either of those two views among Republicans and Democrats is tied to anything more substantial than, boy, we really don't like those other guys. Yeah, I think a lot of it is not tied to principles. I mean, there, there are a lot of people who go vote and it's just team sports. You know, whatever... Your team is saying you like, you like what that team's doing. You know, I, you see this all the time in sports, actually. Somebody will be on your team, and they maybe play a little dirty, but you like him. You like that player because they play dirty for your team. And then they get traded, and you can't believe how dirty that player, you know, I can't believe how right. dirty that player is. Um, that happens, and it happens in politics. There's a lot of that. With that said, I believe that if you go into a town hall and you're a libertarian, and I did many town halls, and um, you're trying to convince people uh, of your way of thinking, you have to start with principles. You, you don't start with the, um, the views and, or the, the rhetoric. You've got to start with the basic principles. So whenever someone came to me and said, Justin, I disagree with you on this vote you took, um, can you explain it to us? And often they were quite a bit angrier than that, um, just to be clear. Uh, they might be yelling or whatever. Um, it, it was mostly pretty common in my town halls, but you, know, you occasionally get people who are, who are quite upset. In any case, the best thing to do is to ask them their principles. Ask them what they believe. Like, what are their core principles? I did this all the time. I, I would ask them, whether they believe something should be handled at the federal level or at the state level. Just ask them. They'll, they'll often tell you something that is counter to what they initially were yelling at you about. They'll say, oh, you know, I guess at the state level. Well, okay, then what are you yelling at me about? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's not a, I, I did what you just said you agree with. You don't want the federal government to handle this. Or they might say that, Something should be handled at the federal level, and then I'll say, well, what about this other issue? Should it be handled at the federal level? And then they'll say, well, of course not. Um, cannabis shouldn't be handled at the federal level. And you'll say, well, what's the difference between the two? Why should one be at the federal and one be at the state? Oftentimes, it ca causes them to think right there, like, well, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe uh, Justin's right. Maybe neither should be handled at the federal level. I think you always have to go to those first principles. And the mistake that a lot of politicians make is they try to convince the people in the audience, whether it's a town hall or on TV or wherever, not that they share principles, but that they share the same views. And I don't try to convince them that we share the same views. I'll try to convince them that we share the same principles. 
And by showing them that we share the same principles, I hope that they will come to my viewpoint. So you have to start with the principles rather than going the other way around. Um, and it, it's effective. I had people, for example, uh, I know this is a long answer, but as an example, um, on some immigration issues, I had some people upset at me, Republicans, at a town hall, um, wondering why I believed immigrants had certain rights. Like I, you know, I told them something about immigrants having rights, you know, I don't remember what the particular situation was, and they were upset about this. And I, so I asked them, well, do, the right, do your rights come from the government or do they come from your creator? Then it's a Republican. The Republican says, well, they come from my creator, not from the government. I said, well, then how could this person not have rights? Do the rights come from the U.S. government or do the rights come from the creator? Are the rights inherent? Are they natural? Are they... Uh, based on just the fact that a person's a human, or are they, are they coming from the, the government? The government dictates what our rights are. If you present it that way, they start to rethink it. They say, you know, you're correct about this. Like, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I've always, the person will say, I've always said that our rights come from God. So why should I think that this person, uh, who's not a U.S. citizen, doesn't have rights? So a lot of times if you take people back to first principles and get them to tell you what they actually think about things, you will find that they have very libertarian principles. And that is not surprising. I tell libertarians this all the time. The mistake they make frequently is presenting themselves as some kind of victims, like we're a small minority, and nobody agrees with us, and isn't it terrible? Everyone's a statist, and you know, we're, we're all on our own, and we have to just you know, move to one particular part of the country and like, wall ourselves off. And the truth is that America was founded with very libertarian principles. Now, they didn't follow those principles from the very beginning. They put things down on paper they didn't believe in. There were uh, horrible atrocities in this country, things like slavery. But the principles that they wrote down were good and true principles. And so it, within our culture... We have a set of principles that are widely believed. I don't think Americans uh, appreciate enough how similar a lot of these basic principles we have are compared to people who have grown up in other countries and lived there for a long time who don't have those same views. Like It's ingrained in us. A lot of classical liberal ideas are really ingrained in the American system. And so if you go to a town hall and you talk to people, it is not hard to get them to agree with a libertarian on principle. And that is the most important thing. Get them to agree with you on principle first, and then work on bringing them to your viewpoint. Illiberalism. Uh, everyone gathered here heard uh, Ian Vasquez and Joan Norbert talking about uh, illiberalism and its rise uh, over the past two decades. Um, what do you th view as the biggest threat to liberty today? Well, that, that's a hard one, because anytime you say something, you'll say something else is a bigger threat. But I, I really think probably the biggest threat is this idea that the end justifies the means. That um, whatever it takes to get your way is what has to be done. And we see this in politics all the time now. This idea, and I mentioned it earlier, with each party saying, 
we must just destroy the other side. And uh, you see this a lot with Republicans now who say, we must use the state. It is our weapon to use against those who are pushing their ways. Instead of saying, let's have an order, uh, a society where we all can work through our differences in a, a peaceful way and cooperate at a larger scale, increasingly people say, no, we have to just impose our will on others. And if we can't oppose our will on others, I guess we just need to like isolate ourselves and cut ourselves off. And um, this is very contrary to like fundamental principles of libertarianism, this idea of like isolating and cutting yourself off and, and uh, decreasing uh, cooperation and exchange between people. So I think that's the biggest threat to liberty. And any threat to liberty, I think, is a threat to human progress. I, I think that's the, that's the fundamental point. I mean, I don't, when I talk to people about this, on, on my, my friends on the right especially, who will tell me, well, we just have to defeat the Democrats. We must defeat them. Um, they're merciless. And if we don't do it, they're going to do it to us. And I say, then what will you do at the end of this? So you've defeated them, then what? Like, they're just going to disappear? There's going to be no one who has contrary ideas again? It's the idea just vanished from Earth? Um, there will always be people who have different ideas. That's not going away. You have to persuade people. You must persuade people. They're not going to, they don't go away because you crush them. That doesn't happen. And this is the mistake seen around the world. That, I mean, one of the big differences between our way of thinking in America and the way of thinking in many places around the world is we don't view it as you have to crush people who disagree with you. We, we view it as an opportunity to learn from each other, exchange ideas, and we're allowed to disagree publicly. And that's what's made uh, our progress here, I mean, magnitudes better than most places on earth. So illiberalism threatens I mean, it threatens liberty, obviously. It threatens the liberal order. And I think liberalism in that sense, in the classical sense, is what, is what has brought us so much prosperity. Justin Amash is a former congressman from Michigan, for a time the only libertarian member of Congress. We spoke at the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit this weekend. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 